Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Hello to our online participants today. God's blessing be upon you as you listen in for the service today. But to the rest of you here in the Mukunji campus, a special treat for us all today. The pulpit series up to this point has been on the topic of joy. It's entitled Rejoy, which sounds like rejoice, or to learn about joy again, referring to joy. So if you were with us over the last month, you've heard messages on the, the joy of friends, the joy of proclamation, the joy of hope. All of these from the joy-filled letter to the Philippian church. But today we're going to be talking about the joy of humility. And we're starting in Philippians chapter 2 and a little bit of the gospel of John. But first, the story is told. And you know, whenever I say the story is told, it means it's not real, right? You know that, right? So anyway, the story is told. There's a group of pastors hanging out together. They drink coffee. They eat some sweets. They have a good time. And then suddenly a big smile forms on the face of one of the pastors. And he says, hey guys, I just finished a new book. It's entitled Humility and How I Attained It. Well, immediately his pride is hurt because they all broke out laughing, just like you did. So there's a little bit of a problem here in preaching and teaching on humility. Isn't it wrong to write or to preach on something without being the subject expert? And I confess, I'm not an expert on humility. But like all of us, I have struggled with humility. So I invite you to join me in my endeavor to develop my humility. And that is true humility, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Listen, humility is not a yes-no condition, sort of like pregnancy, okay? It's, it's a matter of degree. There's always more of humility that we can all achieve. All of us can participate in this activity. And I'll show you something. <clears throat> That humility is the soil that joy grows in. And I'll show that to you. But let me tell you another story first. Within the Jewish studies of virtue, virtue cultivation, there's a school of thought called the Musar School. It's a very old school. It's about 1,100 years old. And in the 1800s, three schools of Musar movement gained the greatest presence in Eastern Europe. And in one of the schools, the students were known for their great humility. And to reach such levels of humility, it's reported they would sit in the study hall for an extended period of time each morning, rocking back and forth, chanting the Yiddish phrase, Ich bin ein Gornisch, Ich bin ein Gornisch, which translated means, I am a nothing. I am a nothing. Well, one morning, a new student arrived at the school, and upon entering the study hall, he was surprised to find hundreds of students chanting over and over, I am a nothing, 
I am a nothing. So he did what any new student would do. He took a seat, and then he joined in the rocking back and forth, chanting, I am a nothing, I am a nothing. But before too long, the student seated behind him turned to him and said, hey, not so fast. I was here for an entire year before I became a nothing. Half that story is true, actually. So let me share some background on this concept of humility. In English, humility comes from its root word, which in Latin is hummus, meaning earth or soil. And in Greek, especially the New Testament that we read, the word is either tapenos or praotes. I'm not pronouncing the Greek right, so if you're a Greek student, I apologize for mispronouncing those words. But it's sometimes translated as meekness. But those two words are primary in doing this. But in Hebrew, Hebrew, different words have been used in the Old Testament. But the most common one in Hebrew is the word anava. In the Hebrew Bible, it's a reference most often to the humility of Moses. You guys all know that. In Numbers chapter 12, we read this. Now the man Moses was more humble, anav meud, more humble than any other person on the face of the earth. This depiction of the national leader Moses as the most humble of all people, it challenges any notions we might have that humility is synonymous with passivity, timidity, or quietness, as some might think. In fact, quite the opposite. Moses was a, had a fiery temper, and he was less than cordial with those who offended God. Please recall, Korah's rebellion against Moses. The earth opened up and swallowed Korah and his whole family for lunch. So clearly, there is more to this term humble and humility than meets the eye. By the way, is anyone else bothered by the fact that the person writing about Moses' humility was Moses himself? Maybe it's the kind of humility where you can still write about such things and remain humble. Maybe that's what it is. So here's a brief summary of humility throughout Western culture. I'm going to ignore, for the most part, Buddhism and Eastern practices of humility. But within the Western world, especially pointing first to the ancient Romans, the Greeks, humility was associated with shame, or the cousin word here, humiliation. They shaped their behavior around honor and shame, attaining honor but avoiding shame. Well, the Jews has their role model of humility, was the model of their prophet Moses, but Western historians would say there was little written on this subject of humility until the teachings of a young Jewish rabbi named Jesus. Thereafter, humility was a sought-after virtue. And many quotes from the New Testament writings support this value, this attribute. Even Jesus' first Sermon on the Mount included it when he said, Blessed are the meek. Some translations say correctly, Blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. And as we'll read today, there's other New Testament writers who elevated the significance of humility. But in presenting a contemporary view of humility, I'd like to introduce a topic called exegeting the culture. 
In exegeting the cultures, this phenomena, you evaluate your culture you're trying to address with the message. And you have to consider that as you present what you're saying. Because the culture may have no concept whatsoever of what you're saying, and you have to be able to explain that to them. But today, we might even have to be aware of the culture within Christianity in 2022. So listen to this. Around 2002, oh my goodness, 2002, that was, what, 20 years ago, wasn't it? It's hard to believe. C. Peter Wagner dared to write on this subject of humility. He noted there were very few books published in the last hundred years on this subject. No, almost no books published in a hundred years on humility. But he did note Andrew Murray's book on the subject. But something changed in the science of humility in the last two decades since Wagner wrote There are a lot of inquisitive psychologists within and outside of Christianity that were taking a fresh look at this thing called humility. One book that presented the motivation for why they began to investigate humility was released in 2006. The book was entitled Generation Me, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever Before. That was the title of the book. Well, since then, there's been some investigations into humility as a solution to this societal sickness. So humility is back in style, at least in secular psychological studies. In my own story on this concept of humility, when I came out of the corporate world, one of the things that was on my review almost every year was some supervisor or some boss saying, Bob Rentler has a lot of skills, but he needs to learn to blow his own horn. And I have to say, I wrestled with that instruction. And I saw what I considered to be a lot of arrogance behind people who did blow their own horn. So I wrestled with the whole thing. I really did. And little did I know, of course, that it would serve me to no purpose because of what I ended up doing. Pastoring, right? So here's my question. How do you be humble when the culture is encouraging you to be proud? How do you do that? How do you, what does that look like to be humble in that kind of culture? So to be clear, and for the rest of this message, I'm going to bring up a working definition of humility. So this is my working definition. Humility is the ability to see oneself from God's perspective— and to be content with it. And that is to say, this means this, being able to take an honest look at yourself, accepting your flaws, your sinfulness, your rebellious behaviors, everything that God knows about you, and yet placing this fact along with this, an understanding of how loved, how forgiven, how blessed you are in your relationship with God, how much God wants you to be secure in your relationship with Him, to have nothing to prove to anyone else, and being at peace with that. To understand that your position with God was even freely provided by Him. Allie introduced that today in one of the songs. Even what we know in God, in our position with Him, we didn't earn it. 
He gave it to us freely. That's part of a real understanding of true humility. So what exactly is the nature of humility? Is it something we have to do? Is it something we become? Is it a virtue we earn over time? Is it a spiritual gift of the Holy Spirit? What exactly is it? Well, let me suggest for my first point today that humility is a virtue based on perspective or your mindset, or in other words, attitude. Mindset and attitude are not biblical words, but there are things like it, like the concept of having a mind. And scripture says, have this mind. It means have this mindset, have this attitude, have this perspective. Humility isn't something you can buy, go to school to learn, or ask the Holy Spirit to gift you with. Humility is counter to our natural instincts. Our natural instincts survive, right? So we push, we strive. Those are the things we do naturally. But humility doesn't come so naturally. And it also has to come to us supernaturally. It doesn't come by going to that rabbinic school and bowing down over and over and saying, I am a nothing. That is not how humility comes. It's a supernatural event. But even our joy under difficult circumstances, even as we've been preaching on for the last number of weeks, is supernatural. It's above our natural instincts. But you do have to be able to exert your will to become humble. Luke records this twice in two different parables of Jesus, this phrase, let everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus discusses that twice. So what are the things we can do to develop humility as a mindset or even as an attitude if we're urged by Jesus to humble ourselves? The trouble is attitude is not an external attribute that's easily observed. You can't tell what my attitude is just by looking at me. There is no meter on humility because it's an internal attribute. It's hidden. It's a hidden virtue. But it's revealed on how we encounter negative circumstances. It gets revealed how we encounter negative people. That's when the virtue of humility appears. So how do I know if I'm humble? Well, if you are truly humble, you wouldn't even have to ask. Because humility is other-focused. It's not me-focused. It's always focused on other people. Which leads us to this very unfortunate truth. There is something known as false humility. Jesus was very critical of the Pharisees for lots of things. But the main thing he was upset about was their appearance of being humble. Yet, even while they were doing something that made them look humble, he knew the state of their hearts. He knew their attitudes. He could see their mindsets. And he highlighted their fake humility for the sake of the disciples. Don't be like them. He used it as a negative example. You can imagine the Pharisees getting ready to go out to the temple and saying, honey, do I have enough ashes and for to look real humble today. Is this enough? Is this enough for that burlap 
sackcloth to look humble. It does look humble, honey. Just let me know. And I actually have my own fake humility myself. Some of you guys know where that. I actually have a loyalty card to Goodwill. (laughs) Now, some of you laugh, okay? Who goes shopping at Goodwill? I go to Goodwill all the time, okay? I I do have a loyalty card. I'm not kidding you. But there's a difference between humility and cheap. You understand that? Okay, I'm sheep. All right. Listen, I have to be careful about this. I am well compensated as a pastor of this church. You have to understand that, right? But I have adopted a life philosophy of simplicity, which includes being cheap. Okay. Some of you know that, right? I roast my own coffee beans, right? Because I'm a connoisseur of coffee. It's also cheaper too, by the way. All right. So anyway, the humility is really best explained by some good examples. Let me give one that I, I really knew very well. The first time I went to a leaders conference in Swanwick, England, I was greeted by a kind fellow. He spoke to me warmly. He, he carried my bags to my room. I assumed he was a porter or maybe someone designated who was going to do that ministry that week. I later learned he was the keynote speaker for the conference. And the head of a large network of churches and he carried our bags to our rooms. I was in awe of his humility. Here's another story. Some of you may know this character. Three young men hopped onto a bus in Detroit in the 1930s, and they tried to pick a fight with the man in the back of the bus. They insulted him. He didn't respond. They turned up the heat with the insult. He said nothing, and eventually the stranger in the back stood up. Woo. He was bigger than they estimated from his seat position. He was much bigger than they thought. He reached into his pocket, handed them his business card, and then he walked off the bus and went his way. Now, as the bus drove on, the young men gathered around the card to read the words, Joe Lewis, boxer. (laughs) They had just tried to pick a fight with the man who would be the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, from 1937 to 1949. The number one boxer of all time, according to the International Boxing Research Organization, he was second on the list right below him, was Muhammad Ali. They apparently said of Lewis, he can knock out a horse with a single punch. I struggle to understand how they figured that out. (laughs) But he was a man of immense power and skill, capable of defending his honor with a single devastating blow. Yet he chose to forego his status and his hold of power for others. In this case, for these very fortunate young men. Think about that. That is humility, power under that kind of control. Some of you all know about the story of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. She was a nun at a convent in Albania, and she had been writing and writing and writing to her superiors about a burden she had for the poor. And I would say she wrote a letter to her superiors an annoying number of times about this until they finally relented and allowed her to go. And she went to Calcutta, which is Kolkata now, it's called Kolkata. And of course, her fame is worldwide. 
but her humility never changed. And that is, she went to people and she treated them, the poorest of the poor in this world, as equals. She treated them as equals. That is humility. So here is our best example of humility. We're going to turn now to Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to give some rolling commentary as we go through it. First, a couple of remarks about our reading. This passage from Philippians 2 most emphasizes not only what Jesus has done, which a lot of the New Testament does, but what Jesus is like, his nature, the nature of his divinity. So Paul was presenting more than Jesus as Savior. He was presenting Jesus as example. And this is actually quite controversial amongst theologians, some of the words in this teaching and this understanding. So there's a lot of discussion, a lot of things written about this very interesting passage of scriptures because it has caused people to question the nature of Jesus Christ himself. Was he God or was he human? Was he man? Or was he both? So we'll get into that in a little bit. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and I'll give commentary as we walk. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, and by the word, the word affection there is intestines, because remember a few weeks ago we talked about deep emotions, and in the, new, the first century, deep emotions was thought to reside in your intestines any intestines and sympathy or mercy, complete my joy. In other words, Paul's saying, I've got lots of joys, but top it off, guys. Come on, go right to the top. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Again, this means attitude, one perspective. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, and humility is one of those contracted words in the, in the Greek, which means this, in humbleness of mind. Count others more significant than yourselves. And as we said earlier, this is counter to our nature. Actually, it's supernatural. Verse 4, let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, have this thought, have this opinion, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Much better translated this, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, Jesus had this attitude, Jesus had this mind, have it in your mind also. Who, though he was in the form, and the Greek uses morphe, meaning essence or the nature of God, he did not equate or count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. An alternate translation would say this. He did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Meaning equality with God wasn't something he did not already have, but he did not exercise his prerogatives as God, even though they were rightfully his. That's what this passage is saying. But he emptied himself. These, these are key words. We're going to talk a little bit about this later. 
ekenosin, the root word being kenoo, meaning to empty, to make of no effect. By taking the form of a servant, that is the essence of a slave, being born in the likeness, that means in the same shape of men, better translated, humans, or if you're Trekkie, humanoid. He took on humanoid shape. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Better translated, he became submissive to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, at this point in the letter, Paul begins to go full blast into a state of exhilarating worship. But he was still on point while he did this. So he continued. And some theologians actually believe this was a recited hymn of the early church. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, meaning those who've already died. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Oh, I feel a chorus coming on. He is Lord. He is Lord. He has risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is this scripture that we were singing. Isaiah prophesied the words of God Yahweh. And God Yahweh says this, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue confess or show allegiance. Wow. This opening segment of this whole passage here, verses one and two, it appears as emphasizing unity, oneness of mind, oneness of love, one accord. But by the time we get to verse three, we see this. Paul is setting up for this thing called humility. And humility has two dimensions here. It has a vertical dimension, our humility before God. But of course, it has a horizontal dimension, which is our humility towards one another. When we view one another as being the same level before God, then we experience horizontal humility toward one another. Because in reality, you know that before the cross, there's only one level and we're all at that level. None higher, none lower. We're all the same before the cross. That mentality is so key in this horizontal humility, which then brings me to my first point in this whole passage that we just read here, which is this one. Jesus is our supreme, meaning the highest example of humility. Remember our definition? Humility is the ability to see oneself from God's perspective, the true perspective, and to be content with it. Jesus was certainly able to see everything that happened to him from the perspective of his father, from the perspective of heaven. That's what Jesus was able to see of himself. 
So recall from last week, Pastor Ian even said this. Jesus was filled with the joy of hope as he contemplated the hope that he had in what would be accomplished by his crucifixion. Hebrews 12 says this, looking unto Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and yet is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Even in that passage, recognizing Jesus had the ability to see the heavenly plan and to see us. He saw us as the joy beyond the cross. He saw each of you believing and following after him. He saw that through the cross. And yet, with this perspective, he was able to be content with the current state that he had assumed as a human. You see, Jesus, before the world was created, he was with God. John tells us he was God. He was the word logos, who spoke into existence everything that exists. And then he assumed human form. Not just any human, but a slave, it says. Furthermore, even to face the in, more than the indignity of death, no, worse yet, not an honorable death in a, as of a war hero, the Klingon wharf would tell us, Today is a good day to die. He aspired a warrior death, but not just any death, but Jesus suffered a shameful death as a common criminal dying in complete humiliation, humiliation in a public crucifixion. See, that was the brilliance of the Roman crucifixion was the shame of the whole crucifixion itself, how public it was. So just in case you have any doubt about the position of Jesus' divinity as the co-creator in the Trinity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we see Paul finishes this section of the letter saying, have the same mindset of Jesus, perspective of Jesus, with this description yet entering entering this, this end statement saying, but Jesus is Yahweh of all heaven and earth and of those who've died before. Everyone at some point is going to bow the knee before him and confess he is the Lord. He is Lord. Does that clear things up for all of you? It does for me. I have no doubts anymore of who Jesus was. So Paul was very eloquent when he described it. This is theologically called the condescension of Jesus. From a very great height, the highest of heights, Jesus stepped down. How low can you go? And he descended to that. So Paul's saying, look at the humiliation that Jesus demonstrated for us. And by humility, in this case, he's saying this, Jesus' ability to see himself from the heavenly perspective, and Jesus fully accepted that. Well, did you know how much Jesus was aware of his own status? We turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Just a short passage here. 
but it's chock full of good stuff about this, of Jesus knowing his high position. So in the verse one of chapter 13, it says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. See, he knew what was going on. He had loved his own who were at the world, in the world and he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put in his heart, in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands. Really? He knew this? And yet? And that he had come from God, but was going back to God. He rose from the supper, laid out his garments, and then took on a towel and tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into the basin. Whoa, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing? He began to wash the disciples' feet. No, Jesus! And to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. This is what the servants do, Jesus. What are you doing? Verse 12. And when he had washed their feet and then put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right. For so I am. And if then your teacher, your Lord and your teacher, I've washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. There it is, folks. Example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant or slave is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. These are powerful words. It's amazing that John captured that. But there's also a revealing incident that was recorded in Matthew. This is right after Jesus is, oh, they, they come to arrest him at the garden. And Jesus reveals something, but he shreds his prerogatives with this statement. He says to his disciples, Do you think I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels. A legion's about 6,000. 12 times 6,000, 72,000 angels. That would be an awesome sight to see, wouldn't it? To see Jesus exercise that prerogative. Talk about knowing the fear of God. Yikes. To see what those 72,000 thousand angels could do. But Jesus, even though he knew who he was, he knew from whence he came, what his mission was. He knew his his destiny. And multiple times in the gospels, Jesus refers to his death and his resurrection. In verse 2, 7 of Philippians here, he says this. He uses a term that's now used in Christian leadership circles. They call it canonic leadership means self-emptying leadership. It's a style of leadership that's becoming popularized again today of emptying themselves. It's based up a concept, true humility, the power of humility with the character, within the character of leaders. Humility is actually having a revival in Western culture. Amazing. In 2005, a fellow who's a bit of a guru on leadership named Jim Collins. Jim Collins studied something and he wrote in his book called Level 5 Leadership. And he identified 11 companies who had 
done exceedingly well as companies. And he studied the characteristics of the CEOs of these 11 companies. He found one common characteristic which really shocked me when I found out about it. And that is he found the common characteristic of humility. Humility. And Jim Collins doesn't even call himself a Christian, but it was the common characteristic. So my last point today is this one, possibly the most important one, which is this. Humility is the soil where joy can grow. It's not a mistake that Paul includes joy in this letter of joy, this segment on humility. There's something else we have to learn about the science of humility. So in the last couple decades, psychologists, they've tried to understand how can your simple, humble state of mind produce this sort of thing? How does that happen? And of course, they would say it actually produces an attitude that affects people's happiness. Psychologists would never say joy. That's a very Christian term. But they refer to happiness. More importantly, they refer to happiness even under difficult circumstances. Sounds like joy to me. Sounds like joy to me. And that's what they have identified now in the current literature. Isn't that amazing? So we're having a revival in humility these days, if I exegete our culture correctly. So our definition of humility is related to a couple of other factors related to our attitude and our mindset. And that is this. Humility directly affects and shows up in our relationships. First and foremost, it's in our relationship with God. As we humble ourselves before God, and then we come to know how we belong to him. That's an important piece. The next one is this. In understanding who you are, it's more important to know whose you are. Do you understand that? The difference between the two? Whose you are. And to know that. And if you have humility, you're confident of who you are in Christ. And once we accept that we are God's, his possession, humility affects our attitudes and relationships with one another. Because then I understand, oh, so I know God and you know God, we know God together. And that affects that relationship. Be of the same mind, be of the same love, be of one accord. And that affects how we treat then one another. And then ultimately, humility determines and gives us an accurate view of ourselves. My relationship with me and how I look at me, if I even look at me at all. Because some would say one of the characteristics of humility is you don't think much about yourself ever. So the outgrowth of this good soil of humility with a secure relationship with God, a great relationship with other people, and of course with yourselves, is this deep joy that rises out of this. I would say happiness if I was speaking to some unbelievers. And this happiness or this joy transcends all of our troubles. It transcends the position where we are. So here's a biblical view of humility. Yes, I am a nothing. But by God's grace, as Ali shared with us, I am a child of God. By God's grace, I'm a fellow heir with Jesus. I'm going to inherit all that Jesus is going to inherit is what it says. Because of the work of Jesus, 
even the shame of death on the cross. I'm forgiven. I'm set free. I am righteous in God's eyes. I am loved. I'm adopted. I can sit with God in the heavenly places. I've been given a new family, a new heritage, a guaranteed eternal fellowship with God. I am secure in who I am and in whose I am. And I'm content with that. And I have to say, it gives me great joy. Great joy. So before we close in prayer, let me just share some exercises that'll help you form an attitude of humility. It's a quick list. I'm doing very well on my time, so I'm not going to race through this. Do this. Observe something that captures your awe. Any of you ever sit out in the stars at night and look at how large the universe really is and get a sense of how very small you are, how insignificant you are in the big scheme of God's creation. That will form humility in you. How about this one? Accept the place where you find yourself. Accept it as God's plan for you. Accept your birthplace. I asked for the break music today, a song. I don't think we did it though. Called, I'm from New Jersey. I don't expect much. Okay, because most people say, where are you from? I go, from New Jersey. Oh, which exit? Seriously. That, or, or they say, I'm from New Jersey. I go, oh, I'm sorry. All right, but I accept my birthplace. And I recognize it that where I was born was all of God's doing. I sit in Haiti and I watch the people in Haiti and say, you know, God, it humbles me to think I could have been born in Haiti just like one of these kids here. This could could have been me. Easily could have been me. But yet God chose to put me in New Jersey. (laughs) Accept your place in time and history. Thank God that he placed you here on earth for such a time as this. Oh, these are difficult times. We all say that, don't we? But there's an importance in accepting the fact that you are here. You are here in this place right now in 2022 for God's purposes. And I'm content with that. That's an important part of your humility. Be content with your social status. What? Accept your social economic conditions as a part of God's larger plan for you. Did you know this? I find this every time. Wealth doesn't bring joy. Otherwise, rich people would be the happiest people in the world, and they are not. In my experience, the happiest people I've met are in Port-au-Prince. Amazing. How can that be? They've got nothing. They're the poorest people on the face of the earth right now, and yet they have a joy that's unspeakable amazing to me. So I know joy has nothing to do with socioeconomic conditions. All right, meditate again over and over what Jesus did for you on the cross and come to that place of level ground where we all stand together. Along with your sin nature, yes, I am a nothing, but Jesus loved this nothing enough to make me his. See? And then I have to do this for Ian. I have a quote from C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis says this, if anyone would like to acquire humility, 
the first step is to realize that one is proud. And if you think you're not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. We all need more humility. Please stand. So the first thing, if there's anyone here today or possibly watching online, and you have heard this call to humility, and you know this requires to believe and accept what God has done for us, and to know God intimately, that he gave Jesus as a sacrifice for all of us, for all of our sins, all of our mistakes. Do you know by simply believing and receiving Jesus, everything in your life can change at this moment. So if that's the case, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if that expresses your faith, I have something for you to do. So here's a simple prayer. You don't have to repeat after me, but just think about these words in your heart. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. I have resisted your call to humility. Please forgive me. I now turn from my rebellious ways. And I thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me so that I can be forgiven and get a new start. I want you to be with me. Please come into my life through your Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, does that prayer express something that you were feeling today? Would you be willing now at this time, if everyone would just bow your heads, And if you're present here in the sanctuary today, would you indicate to me that you prayed that prayer? Just put a hand up in the air, but it has to be up high so the ushers could give you some information to get you started on your walk with Jesus. If there's anyone here who prayed that prayer along with me today for the first time, anyone here? Anyone online? If there's anyone online today who prayed that prayer, If you stay on the broadcast till the end, there's some instructions they'll give you on what can be your next steps. Thank you so much. Okay, prayer team, if you would come on up today, those who are going to be praying at the end of this, while they're coming up, can we all pray together? I just want to pray over all of us a couple of things. First and foremost, Lord God, we pray that we change our attitude our mindset. And Lord, we humble ourselves as Jesus, you told us to do. We humble ourselves first and foremost before you, God. And Lord, thank you for refreshing our understanding of what you, Jesus, did for us as our example, how you emptied yourself for us. So Lord, we pray we'd give us a right view of ourselves, not just as sinners, but also saved by your abundant grace. Give us that view, O God, I pray. But Lord, also help us to be with a right view, humble before others, in love, in oneness of attitude. Lord, help us to be humble and to humble ourselves before one another. And last of all, Lord, I just pray this, that your joy be the abundant harvest that grows out of this humility. All this, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. So I'm going to ask if Katrina can come up here and play the keys. Just so there's something for 
people to pray to as they come up. But if you would bow your humble heads, see, even bowing your heads is a symbol of humility. But God, look at these heads that are bowed. But more importantly, Lord, you look at the hearts that are bowed today. And I pray, Lord, that these would walk in the joy of that humility, that they'd express that joy of humility, Lord, with everyone in their lives. Lord, I pray for that blessing right now over each one who came here today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.